Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Samir. Hey, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm in Singapore and you are in London. This is almost one year when we did our first recording. Oh, this is a very special episode then. Yes, it's kind of already a year since we last spoke. And I think you came on for a couple of episodes, actually. Yeah, yeah. the first one was very, very interesting. I don't know, but that was the one about Asian OEMs. I think we talk a lot about mobile questions. We talk about uh-huh. valuations of startup companies in Asia, whether we're having a bubble. And we also talk a lot about the watch. Everything that is really talking about the implications of the bigger companies to Asia. For uh-huh. example, Google, Apple, and other Silicon Valley based companies mm-hmm. and sometimes we talk about the asian giants as well so how about you how how are things on your side things have been very very good but you know for this episode it's a pretty special episode i want to ask you some questions to start off first okay i will take some questions then all right this is something that probably most regular uh, listeners want to know what's your journey been like so far it's almost been a year what key milestones have you hit with analyzation the idea behind doing the analyze asia podcast was actually to focus on the business technology and media in asia the most challenging part is actually in the sourcing of the guests and getting the right questions to ask to get them to talk a lot more insights about the topics at hand and right. i think the most memorable milestone is probably getting a couple of people who I've been listening to for a while. For example, mm-hmm. Ben Braheron, uh-huh. Benedict Evans, and mm-hmm. most notably of all was Horace Didu, which the inside story is that it was originally slated to be an hour interview, and it went into <laughs> a 2.5 hours interview because the conversation was so great that you, know, right. you just have to record this and we just go <laughs> on and on and on. And of course, the many conversations with you too. Mm-hmm. And then on the other milestones is about getting the other speakers. For example, Cheryl Yeo, CEO of Magic, Hans Tong, who is an investor of Xiaomi, and a couple of my guests from Tech in Asia, Dave, okay. Charlie, and Josh, where we talk about the messaging apps and Uber in Asia on that, and even SoftBank. For me, the, the key milestones for me is I have hit the first target, which is hitting yeah. 1,000 episodes per download. Uh, just to give you a comparison, my first podcast this week in Asia, it took me one and a half years to reach 1,000 downloads per episode. This time, it took me less than eight months. I think currently, wow. if I did a calculation, it's about, I'm now at about 1,200 downloads per episode, but my aim is to grow it to 5,000 episodes per download, which is where it's going to get more interesting. And so broadly, you're following Moore's Law. Yeah, I'm following Moore's law. I'm doing, <laughs> to give some interesting data points, I'm doing almost on average 50% month-on-month growth. In fact, whenever I travel to other countries for work, and if some of the fans of this show picked up that I'm traveling through Twitter, I actually end up meeting with them. I am, in fact, I met up a couple oh. of fans of this show through either they come to Singapore or I was in the RISE conference in Hong Kong. So in your conversations with fans and listeners, have they requested any topics? Yes, there are. The listeners actually have a couple of requests of a couple of topics. I think one of them, the first one, which is the most popular one, is getting the CEOs of important Asian companies. Oh, I can see how that would be very popular. <laughs> yes, we everybody wants, you know, Jack Ma of Alibaba, Robin Lee of Baidu, Terry Go or Foxconn, all the CEOs of Line, Kakao Talk, and you know SoftBank, you know all mm-hmm. all these 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 are what I call the unicorns. They are the hardest to get, but of course, if mm-hmm. any of yeah, our listeners hear that, and if we get to one, the rest yeah. will follow. So yeah. that's like on the top of the list. The second suggestion, uh-huh. which actually is getting very popular now, is the mm-hmm. analysis of Asian companies. All right, so you have an entire episode dedicated to one company. Yes, we've done one on SoftBank. We've done one uh-huh. online. There are a couple of interests. Um, everybody is interested in actually knowing a lot more about Foxconn. Foxconn is actually one of the companies that have been constantly requested by fans. We're also looking at like Huawei, Baidu, Lenovo, of course, Tencent. Uh-huh. And in India, people are interested in Tata Group as well. Tata Group, in- oh, that, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Infosys and Tata Group are also requests for me. And just... For your knowledge, 
I have not interviewed anyone to talk about the India startup and investor ecosystem. So any listeners out there, if you have a suggestion for a speaker, and I'm sure Samir, you are one of them, mm-hmm. let me know where to get this person on the show because this has been a highly... I get emails on that. The Indian startup ecosystem is definitely... It's very different from what you would see in most of the countries. There's a couple of areas where you see a lot of activity and a couple of... and So it, it's kind of a long tail. You have e-commerce and OEMs, which are two really high-valued, high-intensity spaces. And then you have the long tail, which is very, very fragmented presence in other, in other areas. Mm. So it's also, an interesting space to look at. Yeah, I also see demand... On-demand logistics. Coming from the e-commerce companies, right? That's what you we talked about. That's right. I mean, there are other countries other than India that I would love to cover. For example, Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a very interesting startup ecosystem. They call it the Silicon Beach because, you know, most of the startups are aggregated near a beach area. There is Thailand. There mm-hmm. is also Myanmar. It's, it's actually, there's a lot. It's very wide web 1.0, but it's actually a growing internet population that will most likely rival against those of Vietnam in the Indochina region. Oh, I, I can honestly say I know nothing about the Myanmar market. There are, there are requests on that. And then there are also requests on people asking me to go beyond Asia to look at uh, Australia, New Zealand, because we always talk mm-hmm. about the Asia-Pacific market. Yeah. yeah. That's also have been a pretty interesting markets to look at. So there are actually no short of topics in Asia, given mm-hmm. that we have 4 billion population. It's just yeah. the time to really source and to figure out who to talk to and where to go to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the last suggestion that, okay, this is something that I almost got it done, but I didn't get it done, was a live show. Okay, so a Meerkat live show or something that's distributed through a podcast? Okay. It's distributed through a podcast, but actually done as a live show with all the fans within that country to come by oh wow okay all right yeah, so, yeah. so an actual show all right wow. yes i did try to do it for rice but i think the logistics were, are a little bit complicated so yeah, I we i may try to make that arrangement again next year in the next rice conference because the rice conference will be pretty successful that is a possibility on my mind i mean i can always do it in my home country but it is actually more fun to talk to people yeah. who i don't know than people <laughs> i don't know right on that note you said you, you're going to do this next year apart from the live show what else do you think analyze asia is going to do over the next year what's what's it going to look like it's going to be the same maybe to really focus on the quality of the show i'm still not very happy with some of the things that are within the show for example voice quality myself mm-hmm. i'm trying to focus to do a lot more dedicate a lot more time into preparing for the guests before the guests come onto the show. That means the questions, the way I want to draw ideas out from them. Right. First of all, I will look at some very interesting topics in Asia. For example, Asia is actually dominated by a lot of very powerful family business and conglomerates. Uh-huh. We, don't, we don't talk about them, right? We don't talk about uh-huh. private equity. We don't talk about private banking. We don't talk about you know the other parts or livers of the Asian economy, uh, commodities, mm-hmm. resources, and trade. So, so one, one direction I want to put onto it is to actually go into those topics because they are actually beginning to be starting to interface with tech because software is mm-hmm. eating the world yeah, and yeah. They're starting to eating into these different... You can see even in my current day job, I could see that happening in the, in the era of logistics. The second part which is not so much analyze asia which is something i really wanted to do was to yeah. interview some of the thought leaders but more doing like a special period maybe something around around christmas like you know yeah. the 12 days of christmas so you can interview okay. like some writers of books because i would love to interview uh, my wish list will be someone like ben horowitz you know mm-hmm. some of these yeah. guys to get on to get on that but moving forward next year i'm actually going to be introducing a show a new show, actually. Oh, wow. right. It's actually done with an intern of mine, uh, Justin Rodman. We pr- co-produced it, and we did a beta season. So, right. obviously, because th- th- there is a reason why I decided to use the word beta, because it's an idea that's been on my head for a while, and it really bugs me till I needed to create the show. So, so When do you think they're going to see that? They're going to see that next week, actually. It's oh, only wow. five right. episodes, and it's okay, done in seasons. Right. So, so I'm actually testing a new format for Analyze Asia, which is actually based on seasons. That means, um, okay. so the, 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 the title of this new show is called 15 Minutes, inspired, mm-hmm. of course, by Andy Warhol's famous quote. 
everyone should have 15 minutes of fame. The thing that everybody do not know is that Analyze Asia has not interviewed anybody that is below Series B. So actually, I have been avoiding startups for a while for mm-hmm. Analyze Asia. And right. the reason behind that is that 15 minutes is actually an idea that I just want to give this 15 minutes of airtime to any startup. And basically, they come on, they give this one and a half minute elevator pitch about themselves. And then I will just spend the rest of the 30 minutes trying to get more information out of them. I can so, see that being a huge rush for startups. I mean, you're going to see a huge deluge of them trying to get on. Yes. So what I decided to do is I needed to do a beta season to trial this. And actually, I thank JFDI Asia, which is a, our equivalent of Y Combinator in Southeast Asia. They gave me five startups to try. So mm-hmm. we're going to test it, the format. I want to sort of get a lot more feedback on the show before I actually mm-hmm. turn it into a full show. And this will not be a weekly or a daily thing. It's going to be a bit more seasonal. That means I want to construct okay. it in terms of seasons. Like, like okay, the way how some of the, like startup by Gimlet Media. I want, to uh-huh. test, I want to test that kind of format in that. And that doesn't need to take out too much of my time. And I'm able to actually produce it on the fly. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely looking forward to see that, seeing that. I'm sure listeners are as well. And yes. congratulations, Bernard, on, on one year. Yes, I hope to last at least um, many, many years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now getting back to the show on proper. So I think we want to talk about Google Alphabet. You read the letter by Larry yep. Gage for restructuring yep. Google yep. under this new entity called Alphabet. The question I have, what are the implications for the entire organization and how does it affect Google as a whole? I mean, most part of Google in the rest of the world, except the US, are actually not focused mm-hmm. on moonshots. They're actually focused on the yep. Google that's actually driving the business. So what, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Honestly, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact on Google as an organization as the internet services and, and advertising giant that it is today. Because a lot of those employees are in any case insulated from what's happening at, in Silicon Valley with those other initiatives. That said, based on my conversations, there has been, people have taken it positively. I think the, the way they see it is that it's good for the stock, therefore it's good for their compensation. And second, because of this, Google's probably going to be in the news quite a bit more. That's just like a psychological impact that they have on their employees. They just feel like they're working in an organization that's working on really big ideas. And that's so far been seen as a positive. Mm. But, How- you know, in terms of operational impact, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact. I hear a lot of people talk about this move is actually making the company more transparent. They're able to split their advertising search business out from the rest of them and start putting some light on their self-driving cars, X-Labs and everything else. But I see that as a problem because those particular initiatives all require an extensive amount of capital. If they are not making any money, by putting them on a balance sheet, it's going to be difficult. How, how do you see that? Well, I, I think there is some truth to that statement. What I think what Google's trying to do right now is, so far, Google's financials have been kind of weighed down by the investments they've been making. So with Alphabet, what they're going to do is they're going to break out Google's financials separately and then the rest of the initial uh, initiatives separately until one of them grows large enough to be able to spun out on a, be, be able to be spun out on its own. And I think what that's going to do is make Google's financial success more clear. I don't think making their investments more transparent is necessarily going to hurt because of the kind of corporate structure and voting structure they have. Eric Schmidt, Larry Page and Sergey Brin hold pretty much all of the voting rights. So there is not, you can't really see any proxy investor activity going on here. You might see one for most other companies, but Google and Facebook are insulated that way. And I see that they have really started doing that by starting with the Google Life Science division. They put the Calico, which is the institute that's dedicated to longevity research and one with contact lens that do diabetes by grouping them all under that. But there's there's one thing I think that a lot of people have missed about about the alphabet tree structure, right? And that is about managing company motivations. So what happens is when you have initiatives that are starting up under Google, any initiative is going to need, whether they're doing it on purpose or not, it's going to need to conform to Google's business model, right? They have, Google has a fairly creative business model right now, but that needs to, any new initiative, including life sciences, would need to conform to that business model. I think by splitting up these entities into individual groups, they give the CEOs of those new companies more freedom to experiment with their own business models and to go out and find their own market. So they actually have their own targets. And it's been proven through research that that model works better 
So I think this is more about aligning motivations for each and every initiative rather than just purely transparency or any other theory that's been thrown around. But what happens if one of the companies, their objective starts to contradict the Google entity? Well, that's the whole point, right? So you see what happened with Microsoft over the past 10 years. Pretty much every mobile initiative, like the courier tablet that had potential got killed because it would have conflicted with Windows. One of the core tenets of disruption theory is that if you want to be able to disrupt yourself, you cannot do it from within your own company. It's got to be an independent entity that's doing that. And I think this structure gives them the freedom to do that. So if you have a business model that threatens Google, they have the freedom to pursue that business model and to grow it. Disrupting themselves gives Alphabet at least lowers the overall disruption risk for Alphabet as an entity as compared to just Google. So why do you think they made such a bold move? I think this one we've heard uh, bandied about quite a bit and this one is quite right. I think the amount of initiatives they were in, the amount of projects they were starting was growing beyond the initial mission of Google. Mm. And they had to do it. Otherwise, a lot of these projects would get killed off. That's the funny part. Even the naming, right? They don't even got themselves an alphabet.com or, you know, a Twitter account of alphabet. But instead, they call uh-huh. themselves alphabet. And then suddenly, they got, they got made a mockery of not getting their own URLs. And the other part but, is that it, it, they could have just called it Google Group. But I guess there is some significance in the way they name the company. Yeah, I think one, one thing they want to do is they want to make sure that they're able to create a brand for each new project. And that for each new company, Google itself has become such a huge brand today that if the parent company was called Google, I think that brand would sort of permeate into each and every product they created, whether or not that product was from a separate spin-off company or not. So Alphabet, I think, gives them the freedom to create more consumer brands. And the URL part, I don't know, I think Larry Page has been on a binge to acquire these ELDs, right? So he's been buying up .book, .computer, whatnot. He wanted to buy a lot more. I think he's, he got a ha- handle on only a few of them. I think that, that was a report in The Guardian. So I think ABC.XYZ might be his way of saying that, you know, Alphabet, we're moving to a new era of tech. You know, it contradicts with what Paul Graham, who wrote a day before about URLs, and he was saying that .com is still the only domain name that you must have. For a consumer brand, yes, but Alphabet, I think, has the advantage in that it's not a consumer brand, it's just a holding company. And .com really matters when you want to show up in search, when you want to be very, very visible to someone who's looking for a product or service. Right? And Alphabet's not really going to do anything in that sense. I guess there are different industry watchers. They have actually offered their perspectives. And I've read a couple of them. I saw Omar Lake, Jan Dawson, and Horace Didu. I think I would just focus on Horace Didu. I mean, he's probably the first person I've read who have a very clear view of what Google is. I mean, he's probably the one who coined the idea of Google A, Google B. All right? And... Most of the okay. international office serve the Google B. Let me, let me finish that first. I know you didn't okay, agree right, with right. that, okay? I'll All let right. you first argue against the construct, okay? Okay. And then the second question I want to ask is, because most of in the Asia-Pacific is going to Google B, because of the spun-off of Google A, would this also trigger them leaving Google because they don't Google is now not perceived as the brand that is doing all the moonshots. It's actually Alphabet that is doing all the moonshots. Okay, let's let's take it one at a time. The first is for the first is the Google A Google B analogy. So this is I on let me be very honest here, right? This is one of those analogies that looks very, very insightful until you start looking deeper. I think it's very clear that it's been created by someone who's deeply studied another specific business model, and that's a direct business model. And you're trying to fit an asymmetric business model through the lens into the lens of a direct business model, and that that does just does not work. Uh, the construct is basically that Google A is altruistic. They're an R&D organization that just comes out with products and they're not beholden to anyone and they, ha- they receive no market signals to kind of shape the direction of their, of their research. The very fact that this is a company that has billions of users makes that a little bit of a ridiculous argument, but we'll get back to that. Mm. And Google B is the advertising organization that generates all the cash. So they receive pricing signals from the market, but only from an advertising company. So what he says is that Google A and Google B op- operate completely independently of each other. The, the, the reason that's a massive issue is because today, in the tech world as it is today, if you assume that price is the only way you receive a signal from the market, you're analysis is deeply flawed. Customer engagement, user engagement is a huge, huge signal. And the, the reason Google has been able to create so many billion user products is because they receive engagement data and because they're such a data-driven company. What the, the way I construct Google or any asymmetric business model is this way. They've created a free product. This is an intermediate product that generates engagement from users. That engagement creates an asset that Google can then monetize through what Horace calls Google B. Therefore, they're not two independent organizations. It's one continuous flow of motivations. Anyone working in the advertising organization will tell you that unless they receive engagement on their products, they cannot monetize. It is impossible to sell advertising 
on a property that receives no traffic and no engagement. And that's such a core part of what Google is and what any asymmetric business model is. If you define Google as Google A and Google B, you've got to define Facebook as Facebook A and Facebook B. There's, there's no end to it. And that's just a very, very flawed way of looking at those business models. I'll, I'll give you an example, all right? Hmm. Uh, Google Plus. Horace's theory is that Google Plus itself is proof that Google cannot take feedback from the market. But the very fact that they shut down Google Plus and spun off Google Photos into its own product proves to you that they did receive signals from the market because Google Photos was the only part of Google Plus that received any sort of engagement at all. All of their other products, Google Maps, Google Search, have received tons of engagement and based on that, they've improved their products continually. Google Now is a result of improvements made to the core Google Search algorithm because it was receiving engagement from users. If they saw that those improvements were not making any engage, was not, was not receiving engagement from users, they would have either have to pivot or they would have to kill that, like, that entity. Uh, this whole theory that Google's investment in new initiatives shows that they don't receive signals from the market is just completely silly. That the equivalent is that if Apple has invested in, let's say, autonomous cars or Apple Watch, they haven't received any signals from the market because those products have just hit the market now. Now is when they start receiving signals. And honestly, for a product like Apple Watch and any new product, engagement is a far, far bigger signal than prices. Someone might have bought an Apple Watch for $1,000 and it would have ended up in, may, may have ended up in their site table drawer for in two weeks. In, in that case, that $1,000 price point is meaningless. The amount of engagement that they receive, that is what the market signal is. Just to add for your Google Plus point, they actually kept Google Hangouts as well. And oh, yeah, sorry. spun it off into a separate... I think they kept... They, they actually spun off some parts of it separately into their own. In fact, the comments for YouTube is now gone back to YouTube is operating yep. its own comments as well. Exactly. They basically couple everything together and then now decoupling them back out because yeah, and, Google Plus doesn't and work. That's, yeah, and that's, that's based on engagement that certain segments of Google Plus were receiving. The stream itself wasn't receiving a whole lot, so that's been completely just ignored right now. So your point, your point to what Horace Dedu is actually saying is that you're saying that the Google AB analogy is not complete. And you want you think that there is actually much more to actually using things like price, the way how you understand constructions of asymmetric business model to the how it benefits the company on its own. Yeah. And I think the core tenet of Google A and B being separate entities is completely incorrect. I would say the same for Apple, right? They actually built a television, but they just decided not to release to the market. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of rumors talking about this for years. It's just that op- Apple is organized differently. Apple follows a top-down innovation model. The executives have a lot of say in, in terms of what gets through and what doesn't. Google, on, on the other hand, does a lot of experimentation and they're public about their experimentation. In some cases, it did not work out well at all, the like Google Glass. And I think that one thing that Alphabet kind of does is by having individual companies within their structure and giving the CEOs the power to roll out that business, it because they become a little bit more capable. They operate like, a, like an actual business rather than an experiment. Mm. You haven't answered my second question. So... Are there any consequences for people that might leave the Google B from the other parts of the world? The way I see it and through my con- what I've seen through my conversations is no. Well, uh, let, actually, let's, let's, roll, let's go back a little bit. We still don't know what the operating uh, model of Google uh, of Alphabet is going to be. So they could either follow one model in which you have multiple entities housed within Alphabet and Larry Page, just, Larry Page and the team just allocate resources or cash, ca- cash flow within these organizations. And most of that cash is coming from Google. The other possibility, which that some other organizations have followed, is you not only move around resources, but you also move around talent. But a lot of that is going to be engineering talent. It's very unlikely to be business talent, unless they're very, very senior employees. We still don't know how that's going to affect the structure. And I think that will become more clear over the, uh, over the next one year. And now going back to what people have said, I don't think it's going to have a massive impact because the stock hasn't been insulated from Alphabet's investment. So what's happened is Google as a brand is one particular entity now, which itself, which people are pretty excited about themselves, right? So there's been initiatives like Google Now on Tap that have really created a lot of excitement in the organization. And this is still within Google. You have YouTube, you have Android in it. So it's not like Google's not doing anything new. It's just that you have these new moonshot projects that are under Alphabet. Quote, unquote, Google B employees still receive the benefit of those initiatives if they do happen to take off through the value of the stock, right? Because most Google employees get some part of their compensation in stock, even though the stock is still called Google for some reason, it's Alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know that you disagree with Horace's view of the Google A and B, but I also have my gripes as well. I disagree right. with the market's discussion of whether Google is the new Berkshire Hathaway of technology. Because, yeah, I think that's a very lazy comparison. Yes, there's a very lazy comparison. And actually, there is already a Berkshire Hathaway for technology and that's SoftBank. 
I mean, <laughs> no, no you, you look at the SoftBank's balance sheet, their investment in Alibaba is now about, I think, one-fifth of their actual market cap. They have mm. to actually put the, their stake in Alibaba onto their balance sheet to show that it's a very significant stake. And they've done a lot of very good investments over the years. I mean, everything yeah. that SoftBank has done is really top-notch. Yeah. To me, I the think way I, more like... Yeah, the way, the way I structure it is that Berkshire Hathaway invests in mature businesses that are cash generating or, right. some, or possibly mature businesses that may be undervalued, right? Yeah. And I think SoftBank has done something very similar. They've invested in Supercell, they've invested in Alibaba, they've invested in what's print. You know, that's not a very... It's not a, it's not a great asset, at least so far. But broadly, they've invested in, in mature businesses. This is not something Alphabet would invest in at all. Alphabet is a new... Uh, it's probably a blend of a venture capital firm and a conglomerate. Yes, is a is a venture capital with technology innovations within a conglomerate. Yeah. Whereas Bush right. Hathaway is a pure conglomerate where you just yeah. buy businesses that's undervalued, yeah. or you think yeah. that this will grow in ten years, like what Warren Buffett did with Coca Cola, with what yeah. what they did with a couple of the other. I think recently he did a very big investment into I think it was something like four billion to buy a precision technologies company. I think that was aerospace part, right? That's right. For Berkshire Hathaway, they see something different in that traditional business that someone else don't see. And yeah. that's how they make their private I see them more like a private equity. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So it's firm. like it's a combination of private equity and a conglomerate where Google is a combination of of venture capital and a conglomerate. Yeah. If Maybe read, that's the distinction. If you have read recent press releases by Nikesh Arora, they are actually SoftBank is actually rolling back slowly on the software venture capital and focusing on the private equity side. It seems that they are yeah. going to be doubling the, the signal that is giving me is that they are actually doubling down on, on their private equity investments like I mean, Bush Hathaway. Yeah, given the current state of valuation in the tech space, uh, that's uh, probably a decent thing to do. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's why I say that Google is not the Berkshire Hathaway of technology, which I seriously disagree with most of these I, I, tech I, I completely Yeah. Okay, so now we talk a lot about Google's alphabet. So Apple Watch sales and September event predictions. Now, that's the time of the year. There is a lot of difficulty in predicting Apple Watch sales. I mean, Benedict yeah. Evans says it's too early. You have came up with some estimates. Maybe you can share with us some estimates. And also, can you also give my audience some view of what is the difficulty in actually making predictions in all these watch sales? Well, the difficulty is primarily because of, of one issue, right? And we don't know what need the, the watch meets or if it is a luxury product. So if it's a luxury product, it doesn't need to meet a need. The fact that it exists is itself and, and the brand itself is a huge selling point, right? If it isn't a luxury product, if it is a functional product, in that case, a use case becomes necessary. And we're not entirely sure what that is. I think, and because of that, it's very difficult to ascertain demand for that. I mean, early on for the first, for just pre-orders, for example, it wasn't that difficult because there'd be pent up demand for any new Apple product that's launched irrespective of what it is. And, but once you go past that wave of, uh, let's say loyalists and early adopters, it becomes more and more difficult because we're not entirely sure what the product is supposed to be. Uh, my rough guess is that Apple Watch sales were about 1.2 billion. So overall, the the other category where Apple Watch sales, sales are housed increased by about 1 billion and Apple claims that some of the other products in the other category declined year over year. Even they did decline, I don't see that decline being more than like 10 or 15%. So let's say 1.2 billion is what you've got. That's the revenue Even, that comes out from the quality from Apple earnings, Watch, right? From Apple Watch. For others. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's, let's clear that. So it's the 1.2 billion US dollar for others category inside Apple's earnings report. Yeah, that and that's the revenue from the Apple estimated revenue from the Apple Watch. Mm. And average selling price for an Apple Watch reasonably is between four hundred to five hundred dollars. Let's say if it's four hundred, that means Apple Watch Sport made up well more than ninety percent of, of sales. If you go down to five hundred, you're probably looking at seventy or eighty percent. So so broadly, you get somewhere between two and a half to three million. Then another input you have is that Apple said that Apple Watch sales so far were higher than iPad sales or iPhone sales after the first nine weeks. iPad sales after the first nine weeks totaled about 2.3 million. That's a rough estimate. So broadly that two and a half, two and a half, maybe a little bit above that number looks okay. Some analysts have taken this to assume that uh, what they're trying to do is fit that curve into a rising trajectory of sales. What the reports that came out when the Apple Watch launched was that there were a million or more pre-orders. And if you do that, you see a million, let's say, orders on day one, which is April 10th, and then one and a half million for the rest of the quarter, right? And that doesn't look like it's a rising curve. That looks like it's a it's a declining curve to me. But what a lot of analysts took away is that Tim Cook said that June sales were higher than April or May. 
and they've kind of latched onto that. The issue is, if you look at Apple's SEC statement, for online orders, Apple registers a sale when the product has been delivered to a consumer. So that means if they took a million pre-orders, uh, I'm sorry, and, and what the analysts have assumed is that based on what Tim Cook has said, pre-orders were incredibly low. And I don't think anyone's going to buy that argument. Given what happened to the supply the moment pre-orders went live and what happened to the shipping dates, it's very, very unlikely that pre-orders were very, very low. Pre-orders were clearly high. And even with other third party, including pretty research analyst timing and that, that pre-orders were well over a million. So what's actually happened, in my opinion, is Apple took in a million or more pre-orders when they, when they came out. They didn't have a whole lot of supply, which is why shipping dates got, got extended. And over time, they ramped up their supply and a lot of orders got, a lot of deliveries were made in June. And because of that, quote-unquote, sales were high in June. That doesn't necessarily mean that actual demand was in- was increasing because the numbers just don't make sense that way. So actually, how is the Apple Watch doing then? Is it a slow <laughs> growth or is it not it's growing? Or is it what people are saying that there aren't enough orders and it's starting to decline? I've only got two inputs right now, right? One is what Apple reported in their, uh, in their financial, what I just told you. And second is what Google Trend is saying. So right now, the Apple Watch is trending below the iPod and the gap between them is increasing. It's basically matched interest in Fitbit right now. Fitbit is slightly higher at the moment and they're, they're both declining. So it, at least I don't know about demand, but at least in terms of interest, it doesn't seem to be doing that well. In terms of actual sales, it's hard to say because they just, I think the last week of June was when Apple Watch hit Apple Retail and then in August it hit Best Buy and now they're, they've done some things to kind of expand availability. So it's very hard to gauge at the moment, but it doesn't seem to be a home run. At least, I think it's safe to say that. Everything else is a guess. But you know that there is this saying in mainstream adoption of Apple products, they usually wait till version 3. It's usually the Apple loyalist that's actually buying the first one or two generations. Right. Uh, yeah, and that goes back, um, pretty much every argument that are, uh, there boils down to Apple's raising the SDK, therefore the the watch is going to create uh, apps are going to create new use cases for the watch and that's going to drive demand that's the basic context right and that's what what happened for the iphone and ipad for the ipod it was different because the use case was clear right from the get-go which is a thousand songs in your pocket and what drove demand in that case was compatibility with windows so let's go back to the and this is an argument i've made tons and tons and tons of times smartphones the reason app development app innovation was third and the reason you found new kinds of apps on the smartphone was because Compared to the PC, smartphones were used in a different context and they introduced a new interaction model. Wearables, this is not specific to the Apple Watch, do neither. There's very few contexts in which you have access to your smartwatch and you do not have access to your phone. So they're not really removing friction as much as you want it to. And second, it's not really introducing a new interaction paradigm because still the touchscreen. All it's done is introduce a new constraint, which is instead of a couple of minutes of an interaction window, you've got a couple of seconds. The interaction window is a couple of seconds. There's no advantage because the interaction model itself remains the same. I call the watch interface a single button console. So you can only do a single button transaction. So the, the UI exactly. is constrained by itself. But exactly. I guess... So you've got to have a single button interaction in the same context. So in what context is that single button more helpful than pulling out your smartphone because you've still got it? So notifications, yes, but notifications aren't a use case for millions and millions of people the use case for the two of us is it still early to call the apple watch a flop it, it is obviously early i, th- I think uh, some people have jumped the gun there it's very early it's been one quarter of sales we don't know what apple's internal expectations were we know what wall street analyst expectations were so it's underperformed street expectations if you if you want to put it that way but that doesn't mean anything beyond that it, which draws That's- me to something to sort of follow up from asking you, I read this article by Aaron Miller on comparing the future Apple Watch closer to the iPod than the iPhone. I, I, I actually quite agree with that because the iPhone is just something that totally disrupt the telecommunications and mobile industry. And I don't think that, that Apple would get another product like that. Maybe with a car or maybe with something that thoroughly requires it to be disrupted. Okay, let, let's say that nothing is comparable to the iPhone, but that mm. doesn't necessarily mean it's comparable to the iPod, right? So, which should it be comparable to? Should it be comparable to the iPad? Eh? I, I don't know what it's comparable to, but I think both the iPod and, and the iPad, when they were released, it was very, very clear what they were for. Mm. When the iPod came out, Steve Jobs went out on stage and said, a thousand songs in your pocket. That's what it was for. And the moment you heard it, you knew what it was for. When Steve Jobs launched the iPad, he was sitting on a couch on the stage and browsing the internet. And so it was very clear that that was the lean back to it. This is what you use it for. You're at home, you're on your couch, you browse the internet, you play games. It was a light consumption device when it was introduced. 
but it was very very clear what it was for what the watch is for to do something on your wrist what that something is or if that is good is that something is going to be meaningful we do not do not know so i think it's very difficult to compare it to anything so you think that you have its own path as well maybe clearer to the path of the other wearables like the fitbit the jawbones it's possible i it, right now it's unclear what the fit what the path of those wearables is going to be as well right i, I think some analysts are just jumping the gun assuming that this is going to be the next major tech wave when we just don't know enough about it to to assume that so it's the fundamental question that I, no one wants to ask but i want to ask should apple open the apple watch to android it depends on how they see the watch right if they see it purely as a an accessory to sort of increase the lifetime value of loyal iphone consumers then no if they see it as own standalone product that's supposed to generate revenues then yes might be a moot question right now it's, it needs to people still need to figure out either a what it's for or they need to double down on the whole this is a luxury product angle before you, you go out and let's say open apple watch to android but here here lies the dilemma right because apple actually also have built certain products for android for example apple music they did that mm-hmm. there is actually they could use the same argument they have for the ipod in the past to the Apple Watch. Currently with iPhones, you probably have 20% of the market, but if you open for Android, you get maybe probably, you know, 20 to 30% of the, the market itself. For a few, from pure numbers perspective, yes, that is, that is meaningful. Mm-hmm. But you also need to have a product that appeals to the mass market. So just because you open it up to what the billions of Android users out there, uh, many of whom are not tech savvy, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to come out and buy the Apple Watch in droves. You still need to have a value proposition for that product. I think, yes, if the Apple Watch figures out what it is, that is a logical step. But I think the fact that uh, I, I think Apple Watch figuring out what itself is not, figure, figuring out what it is, is not a home run yet. So you have to wait for them to figure out their value proposition before they decide whether they should open it to another platform. Yeah, because I mean, otherwise, you don't want a high profile. I know people hate this word flop. I'm assuming, let, let's say, five years, we are in 2020 right now. And the Apple Watch has not been able to get any meaningful traction. At that point, it's probably better for it to be for it to remain within the iOS ecosystem than be open to the world. Right? And that's just because it has it it hasn't figured out what it is. You, you don't know what it is. Okay, I think we will have to wait for another couple of months, and then with more numbers come up, and then we can decide whether Apple Watch is still going to be serving some value proposition to the mm-hmm. customers. Mm-hmm. Coming to the Apple September 9, 2015 event, okay, it's yeah. rumored because the invitations have not been sent out yet. Yeah. What are your predictions? Uh, these are not predictions as much as repeating what's been said in the press. <laughs> <laughs> so, which one, but, which you know, one, no, actually, I think we should be. Which one do we think are credible? <laughs> but I, as you know, I think Apple's going to do two events as usual. They do it every year, September and October. September is where they do the iPhone. And you might have a new Apple TV and October is when they do the iPads. I think the September one is going to be fairly mundane except for maybe maybe the Apple TV. I, I'm curious to see what they do there. Mainly because I, I, I always talk about apps needing a new context or a new interaction model, right? And there is potential to do that on the TV. So, th- so that's why I'm interested in what they do with the app. In, for the October one, I'm interested in what they do with the iPad Pro. I've been saying this for years that the iPad is going to get eaten up from below. And iPad needs to move up market into the enterprise if it needs to grow sales. And uh, and initially when I said that, the response from analysts was, no, the iPad, uh, Apple has no competition. Apple just, I, I really don't know what those arguments are, honestly. It's, it's, they assume that competition does not affect Apple in any way. It does affect competition. Even if you aren't losing customers, it does affect you because if your customers aren't going to buy a new product, you need to expand, expand your reach. You need to sell to new customers. And those customers aren't going to buy your product. You have a problem. That, that's why the iPad Pro is something Apple should have done a year ago, more, more than a year ago. You see, that's the problem I've been having. They want to have an iPad Pro, which is 12 inch. They already have a MacBook, which is 12 inch. Wouldn't these two products cannibalize themselves? Yeah, and you need to because if, if you don't, somebody else will. Right now, Android tablets are still very are are still low quality. They are improving. You, you Android tablets have been absorbed into use cases like you know point of sale terminals. Which is, it's not enterprise, but it is business. And, and Google's improving their work suites. Microsoft's improving their work suites. At, at some point, someone is going to, going to cannibalize you because everyone is scared. Everyone is trying to defend themselves. If you not releasing an enterprise iPad for defending your MacBook is a very Microsoft Steve Ballmer move where they wouldn't release a career because it would endanger Windows and the, and, and the Office. And we know how that turned out. So I don't think Apple or any other company should be doing that. That's not a valid strategy. How does that affect us in the rest of the world? I mean, 
I will probably put in the most obvious one. The Chinese markets is facing an equities crash problem. So do you think that Apple's China revenues are going to be affected? Uh, it's hard to say how much an average Chinese household would have, how much stake they would have in the Chinese stock market. I mean, it when it starts affecting the overall economy, there is a psychological impact. So that could be that could have an effect. But I'm not sure if it would have a direct impact that because equities have crashed, people have less money to spend. It's more about equities crashing, confidence in the economy goes down, maybe growth starts slowing down, people start getting more wary about spending money. Maybe that could have an impact, potentially. But it's not going to be some, it's not going to, it's not because the Chinese market went down by 20%, Apple sales are going to go down by 20%. Mm. I, I still think Apple's biggest danger is companies like Xiaomi and low-end manufacturers. They're going to start eating up the market from below. And those, the cheap iPhones that, the, the low end, quote-unquote, low-end iPhones that are being sold, what was the iPhone 4S? Now will be the iPhone 5C or 6C. That that's where you need to keep your uh, what you need to watch. And also, they because of the lawsuits between Apple and Samsung, they will also block out Xiaomi and the Chinese OEMs from entering US as well. In what sense? Because of the that? intellectual property challenge. Oh, so yeah, this I, is I, a I, very I, common. This is this is probably yeah. one of the most interesting thing that have happened in the last year. That all the Chinese smartphone makers are actually moving into the emerging markets, but not into the US. Yeah, yeah, because they need a patent. So what Xiaomi has been very upfront about is that they are building up their patent portfolio right now. And that's, I think, why they released that their last round of funding. So why I think what they're going to do is uh, emerging markets are low-hanging fruit because it's easy to enter. They don't need that patent trove to do it. Once that patent trove they think is ready, I think what they're going to do is move into Europe first because it's an easier market to crack. And only after that, the US. I, I've told you about what I think their pitch is going to be, right? They tend to attract tech-savvy users that use up a lot of data. That's been the core pitch uh, of the iPhone as well, except what they're going to come out and say is, if you're going to subsidize, this will be a lot cheaper for you to subsidize or you don't need to subsidize. We actually, our users use more data than the iPhone. So if you can get some of your users, some of those users over, it's going to benefit you. So I, I kind of recall our conversation one year ago when we talk about Samsung. A year later, their smartphone sales are still tanking. So how yep. are they going to turn it around now? I Honestly, they're smart. I don't think they're going to turn around their smartphone portfolio. They're, I, I said this last year as well. The, the way they're going to grow is by focusing on semiconductors on components. That's what their strength is. And right now, because the smartphone industry is being commoditized slowly, they have more customers for their components business. And I think that's how they're going to recover. It's not going to be through smartphones. So they're going to end up dropping out from the smartphone race and just focus on the sort of solid-state drives in the smartphone displays. components, uh, displays, displays, I think displays and chipset as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be a slow and steady drop for them. They are being disrupted by Xiaomi right now. And uh, they had the additional disadvantage that Apple released a larger screen smartphone this year, this year, for which there was a lot of pent-up demand. I, I honestly think the bigger issue for, for them is Xiaomi and manufacturers like that. And they're just not going to be able to compete with those guys. Right. So I just have a little bit of time. Uber's leaked financials, we saw it. Now what? Are they going to IPO? Or maybe just to give a context, I think they, the financial figures for, I think last year was actually leaked out into the press. I think Gizmodo actually went and put up the numbers. So they are now have already raised more than a few billion, two to three billion dollars. What do you see would happen to Uber? So I, I think the IPO is less of a question mark for me. Right? I think they're going to need to IPO in the next one to two years because their funding climate is going to dry up. The bigger issue is clearly the, fund, the valuation, at least as of 2014, has raised past their fundamentals. So I did some analysis on their, on their figure. Right? What it looked like is their operating margins were in negative territory, but they were rising until say mid-2013 when they got that $258 million investment from Google Ventures and a couple of other VC firms. Mm. Since then, they've been investing into growth. And the margins started tanking and it just kept going deeper and deeper into the red. At least their revenue growth did not seem to keep pace with those with those margins. A rule that Fred Wilson from AVC uses is that the sum of year-on-year growth and operating margin should be 40%. So if you're deeper into the red, you need to be growing much faster to make up for it. In 2014, the sum of Uber's year-on-year growth and operating margin was minus 30%. So that they weren't growing fast enough to make up for those losses. And you know, some people have this opinion that, yeah, that doesn't matter because they can just flip a switch. Right Right now, what they're doing is subsidizing drivers and, and users. And the moment they flip that switch, they stop spending on advertising and subsidies and they become pro- magically profitable. And I think that's a silly argument. I mean, that's argument in use for Amazon as well. Look, investors are interest in uber because it's growing right and what they expect is for uber to continue growth maybe slow down their growth a little bit and eventually become profitable 
right? They don't want Uber to completely throw away, throw in the towel and say, we're not going to go anymore and we're just going to make decent gross margin. And also, the fact that they're subsidizing users means that a lot of the users are coming on board because the prices are low. So normally what happens is your cost of customer acquisition, you're okay increasing that as long as you acquire customers that have a higher lifetime value. In this case, what's happening is the cost of customer acquisition is going up and you're acquiring users that have a lower LTV because they're sensitive to price. That right? is also due to also their expansion into Asia. They got clobbered in China by QuietDDD, Ola Caps in India, and yeah. Southeast Asia by GrabTaxi. Yeah, so, and, and all of these companies have similar investment profiles. That's right. So there can only be two things that happen, right? If they don't go beyond that certain growth percentile as prescribed by Fred Wilson, wouldn't they get themselves into a lot of trouble if they go public? My feel now is that Uber has to buy out one of those three, but they're all owned by the same guys. Well, we've seen that happen before. But let's, let's backtrack. This is how I see it. So right now what's happened is, again, valuation is clearly ahead of where fundamentals are. But because of the investments, what's happened is they've managed to create this massive infrastructure in place, which is cars zipping around the city, uh, shuffling passengers on board. They do have excess capacity in each of those cars. There may be multiple avenues for them to monetize the same existing network without making new investments. So that could potentially help them make the numbers, make the revenue growth look more, come closer to where the valuation is. And I know you're probably going to disagree with this, but I think the, one of, at least one of that opportunities is in small-scale logistics, right? So you've got a car shipping a passenger from point A to point B, and you have another customer who wants to, he wants to send lunch to his wife. Or his wife wants to send lunch to her husband. You know? He can just put, drop the, the lunchbox off in the same car. So it could be really not targeting the enterprise logistics market, you know, not things like deliveries from Amazon, at least not yet. But these small scale, uh, really small scale deliveries that people don't really have a reasonable alternative for, I think that could help bring in some more cash by using the, the same infrastructure structure without new investments that could potentially help narrow that valuation and fundamentals gap. I, I don't have problem with that. The, pro- the problem is that I think a lot of technology writers conflict C2C logistics with B2B logistics. Yeah, yeah. The problem with all of them is that they assume that because of Uber's C2C model, that economics will actually work for a B2B play. The answer is no, because in a B2B play, any logistics company that's doing deliveries for any brands, they need mm-hmm. to fulfill a certain service level agreements, which mm-hmm. requires them to have that particular fleet. That means I need to have a 1,000 trucks to mm-hmm. deliver this across how many locations. And Uber mm-hmm. cannot make 1,000 cabs happen in the same time in order to get the same delivery happen. They can mm-hmm. optimize maybe for 10 to 20, but I cannot see them scale. So you're right. They, they might do auxiliary delivery services on top of that. Mm-hmm. And actually, my real guess is that eventually they will end up owning self-driving cars. They will have no choice. Whether they, still... they love it or not, because they, they okay, cannot yeah. be totally asset light. In, if they ever yeah. want to get into enterprise, they have to become asset heavy. So they have to have a heavier cap capex. Yeah, and and we've had this discussion before. I, I they might have to at some point, but that's going to be very bad. That's kind of disruptive to them because right now they have they basically have no capex, right? It's yeah. just drivers owning cars. The moment self drivers cars come in, someone has to own those cars. Correct. And, and, and I actually explained this very clearly because I was evaluating all these Uber Forex companies and a lot of people think that the logistics companies are not thinking about it. We are actually thinking very hard about it. And mm-hmm. we see that the, the, the biggest kind of hurdle for us is that we, we are trying to imagine how do they disrupt the B2B play from their current business model, which is asymmetric mm-hmm. to what the current business model is. Of course, we are always talking about asymmetric business models, but it is in yeah. this case, the asymmetric business model cannot be scaled, which is what gives us like the biggest dilemma. It's like, what should we do? But actually, wait, I have a question. Well, when we're looking at B2B deliveries, what exactly are you delivering? We're delivering a piece of goods from point A to point B. Okay. Yeah, but what is that good and who is delivering? Uh, let's say... Company A wants to send something to company B. So give, can you give me an example of company A, company B, and what that good is? Okay, so you could do a delivery of, of components, say from a manufacturer to a system integrator. That's a B2, that's okay. a complete B2B play. And that, like, or you could okay. do something like maybe materials from uh-huh. a mining resource to okay. the particular place for doing that. In those okay, cases... What about- you're talking about what, what very about? high tons of delivery. We're not talking okay. about like few kgs. We're talking about in scale. Okay, all right. I, I'll have I, I'll draw an analogy to this. The mm. way I see this is, 
the iPhone 6 is right at the top of the smartphone market. And then you have the other iPhones, the other Samsungs, and then you have low-end manufacturers. And the low-end manufacturers are disrupting. They're starting to move upwards by disrupting Samsung. And the next target would be the bottom-rung iPhone. And the way I see it is the iPhone 6 is what you're talking about in terms of B2B deliveries. And that's probably not what something what not something Uber should be looking at now as well. Instead, what they should be looking at is, again, like you said, C2C delivery. And the next step would be maybe B2C. Maybe that's as far as they can go, which is, you know, deliveries from Amazon. Even for the B2C model, they have a problem too. Is, is, that, is, yeah. the, is the asymmetric business model that I'm talking about. They can't mm-hmm. do 1,000 delivery. They can't find 1,000 truck drivers to deliver from B2C. Even for that. Even for that, it's a very, very big leap of faith. For Uber. And I don't think a lot of people are not thinking about this carefully. I, let's look at it this way. Right? Mm. Let, maybe they don't need that. So what what if Uber goes to Amazon and says, we'll give you the the option of giving your customers one-hour delivery if there's a cab available. So all let's say there's an Uber button there. People, people click on the Uber button and it says, okay, there's a cab available. You can get this delivery in one hour. And if not, it, they, get the, they get the usual delivery. So it's not like it's completely going to take over the B2C space, but there are ways they can they can enter it. Correct, correct. They, they can enter it, but they are not going to completely disrupt the B2C market because no, okay, of certain right? constraints. Yeah, yeah, this is okay. But is yeah. it as what, they, what some tech writers claim that they could actually totally eat up the B2C market? I disagree with that. I, you know, at least in the next five years, it's really, really hard to see that. But the way I, I, I see it is that if they do enter the B2C space and the C2C space, that gives them a way to monetize their existing network. And maybe the valuation doesn't look so bad. Then. Yeah, that, that, that is possible. But, you know, I actually don't agree with the valuation. But uh, mm, yeah. of course, what, who am I to know? Everybody yes. who have done that have already said that the valuation is justified. So I'm going to watch and see if they justify it or not. Okay, so we come to that time of the day, just nicely in an hour. Samir, help my audience. How do they find you? Well, you can find my blog at tech-thoughts.net or you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Samir underscore Singh 17. Okay, you can find me at bilangcw or at bernalong.com or subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia or listen to us through Stitcher, iTunes or SoundCloud. Please leave us a review and, of course, give us a better rating. Once again, Samir, thank you for coming on this one-year anniversary. I'm sure we will Glad have a lot to here. talk in the in months to come. Glad to be here, Bernard. I'm pretty sure we're going to have multiple anniversaries. Yep. Cool. Take care then. See you.